Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to Episode 69 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Pope Joan. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So the word Pope is based on the Latin and Greek words for father. But for centuries, many people believed that one of the popes was actually a mother in the literal sense. The story goes that in the Middle Ages, Pope John was traveling down a Roman street in procession when suddenly he gave birth to a baby, proving he was a woman, and thus was born the legend of Pope Joan. And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, first, let's uh, mention that this is a patron's episode. Yeah, every month we ask the patrons at Patreon what they would like to hear about, and this month they picked the topic of Pope Joan. Why wouldn't you? It's a fascinating mystery. Who was the first person whose work we have that mentions Pope Joan? He was a French Dominican named Jean de Malay, or Jean de Maly. I have to apologize. I haven't yet studied French phonology. And he was a chronicler, meaning he was a kind of historian, working in the French city of Metz. In 1250, he wrote a work called the Chronica Universalis Metensis, or the Universal Chronicle of Metz, in which he mentions Pope Joan. And what did he say about her? He located Pope Joan in the year 1099, about 150 years before his own time. And he wrote, Concerning a certain pope, or rather female pope, who is not set down in the list of popes or bishops of Rome, because she was a woman, who disguised herself as a man, and became, by her character and talents, a curial secretary, then a cardinal, and finally pope. One day, while mounting a horse, she gave birth to a child. Immediately, by Roman justice, she was bound by the feet to a horse's tail and dragged and stoned by the people for half a league. And where she died, there she was buried, and at the place is written, O Peter, father of fathers, betray the child-bearing of the woman pope. At the same time, the four-day fast called the Fast of the Female Pope was first established. So that's the basic story. A woman with great talents disguises herself as a man, rises to become pope, and is then exposed when she gives birth in public. This story was then picked up by other authors and included in other works dating to the 1200s. But notice that in this version, the female pope doesn't have a name. She's just an anonymous woman. So who was the first to give her a name? That appears to have been the Polish author Martin of Trapau, who wrote later in the 1200s, although it may have been one of his editors who did that. The third edition of his Chronicon Pontificum et Imperatorum, or Chronicle of Popes and Emperors, contains an account of her, but the earlier editions don't. The third edition, so that's why it may have been an editor rather than him. The third edition says that she was named Johannes Anglicus or John the Englishman, but he also calls her John of Mainz, despite the fact that Mainz is in Germany, not England. And some later accounts tried to harmonize that by saying she was from an English family, but was born in Mainz. His version, Martin of Trapau, uh, his version also differed from 
John DeMailey's version, and here's what he had to say. John Anglicus, born at Mainz, was pope for two years, seven months, and four days, and died in Rome, after which there was a vacancy in the papacy of one month. It is claimed that this John was a woman who, as a girl, had been led to Athens, dressed in the clothes of a man, by a certain lover of hers. There she became proficient in a diversity of branches of knowledge, until she was she had no equal, and afterward in Rome she taught the liberal arts and had great masters among her students and audience. A high opinion of her life and learning arose in the city, and she was chosen for pope. While pope, however, she became pregnant by her companion. Through ignorance of the exact time when the birth was expected, she was delivered of a child while in procession from St. Peter's to the Lateran in a lane once named Via Sacra, the Sacred Way, but now known as the Shunned Street, between the Colosseum and St. Clement's Church. After her death, it is said she was buried in that same place. The Lord Pope always turns aside from the street, and it is believed by many that this is done because of abhorrence of the event. Nor is she placed on the list of the Holy Pontiffs, both because of her female sex and on account of the foulness of the matter. So this adds more detail to the DeMaley version. Also, Martin's Chronicle places Pope Joan earlier, in the 850s, between Leo IV and Benedict III. So this account gives her name as John. Why is she now called Joan? Just because it's a feminine form of the name John. And there are there other versions of the account? Yeah, one version of Martin's Chronicle says that she didn't die, but was deposed and arrested, after which she led a life of penance. And according to this version, her son, uh, the one she gave birth to in public, became the Bishop of Ostia. That's Rome's port city, because Rome is not itself on the ocean, so it needs a port to you know bring in and out goods by sea, and that's Ostia. And he had her buried, according to this account, in the cathedral in Ostia when she died. Also, according to some sources, the female pope wasn't named John or Joan, but Agnes or Gilberta. I understand there are some colorful legends associated with Pope Joan. What can you tell us about them? One is that after the Pope Joan incident, uh, the cardinals instituted a test to make sure that new popes were male. According to this legend, the new pope was required to sit in a special chair that had a hole in the seat, kind of the ancient equivalent of a toilet, that one cardinal would reach under the seat upon the pope's election and physically inspect the pope's anatomy with his hand to make sure that he was a male. Worst job ever. <laughs> yeah. Another author, thought to be the 14th century writer Petrarch, reported that strange things happened once Pope Joan was revealed to be a woman. He said, In Brescia, it rained blood for three days and nights. In France, there appeared marvelous locusts, which had six wings and very powerful teeth. They flew miraculously through the air and all drowned in the British Sea. The golden bodies were rejected by the waves of the sea and corrupted the air so that a great many people died. Some might read that as either indicating the divine displeasure that there was a female pope or that the female pope was treated so badly or something. At the time, most people probably would have taken it to be some kind of divine displeasure at there being a female pope. So did people at this time believe that there had been a female pope? Well, once chroniclers started including it in their history books, yeah. Starting in the uh, 1300s, it was widely believed. In fact, in the Cathedral of Siena, Italy, they had a bunch of busts of former popes 
And they made one for Pope Joan, putting her between Leo IV and Benedict III. So how did that start to change then? Once the Protestant Reformation began in 1517, various Protestant authors started using the Pope Joan legend in their anti-Catholic writings in an attempt to embarrass and discredit the Catholic Church. And that prompted people to take a harder look at the question and to reevaluate the evidence. Part of this process involved applying new textual and scholarly principles that had been developing for evaluating historical materials, you know, like during the Renaissance and so forth. So what theories are there about Pope Joan? They fall into two basic classes. The first class is that says that the legend is basically true and that there was a female pope. If you support this theory, you then have to decide which version of it happened. Was Jean de Mailly right that there was a female pope in 1099? Or was Martin's Chronicle right that there was a female pope named John in the 850s? Or were other accounts right that, say, there was a female pope named Agnes or Gilberta? The second basic category says the legend is false and there never was a female pope. All right. So what can we say about Pope Joan from the faith perspective? The first thing is to look at whether she would have been a valid pope. Now, by definition, uh, the pope is the bishop of Rome. And so to be a valid pope, you must be a valid bishop. Uh, that means that you must have received valid holy orders. But in paragraph 1577 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it states, Only a baptized man, in Latin vir, validly receives sacred ordination. The Lord Jesus chose men, in Latin viri, to form the College of the Twelve Apostles. And the apostles did the same when they chose collaborators to succeed them in their ministry. So, vir is the Latin word for man. Unlike homo, it indicates a person specifically of the male gender. This means that a woman couldn't validly receive consecration as a bishop, and so she couldn't be a valid pope. Therefore, if there was a Pope Joan, she wouldn't have been validly elected, and thus she would be what's technically called an anti-pope or a false claimant of the papacy. The second thing to ask from the faith perspective is what the implications of this would be. Various anti-Catholic authors have tried to make hay with the story of Pope Joan, but my personal reaction from the faith perspective would be, so what? There have been many anti-popes in the history of the church, people claiming to be pope when they weren't. And if there was a Pope Joan, that would just add another one to the list. Some might argue uh, that this would create a break in the line of popes, but the implications of this aren't what they would think. Sometimes you will hear Catholic apologists talk about an unbroken line of popes stretching back to the first century, but this doesn't mean there aren't gaps between popes. When they discuss this unbroken line, they mean it in the same sense that here in America, we have an unbroken line of presidents back to the founding or like some countries have an unbroken line of kings stretching back centuries. What that means is the institution has endured, whether it's the institution of the papacy, the presidency, or the monarchy, but it doesn't mean there are no gaps between individual popes, presidents, or kings. Uh, we even have names for such periods. We call them interregnums, or periods between the reigns. Thus, if an American president dies in office, there will be at least a brief period before his successor is sworn in, like when JFK was killed in 1963, and it wasn't until later that day that LBJ was sworn in on Air Force One. So there's a gap of a few hours where America had no president. Similarly, 
in uh, countries that have monarchies, when a king dies, there may be a period uh, before the new king assumes office. Like in ancient Rome, even though they would call them emperors, they were really kings. I mean, Mm -hmm. we have no king but Caesar. When an emperor would die, the Roman Senate would have to elect a new one. And that would take a little bit of time. So they'd have an interregnum between the emperors. Uh, When a pope dies or resigns, there's a period in which the cardinals gather to elect a new pope. Like when Pope Benedict resigned in February of 2013 and Pope Francis wasn't elected until the next month. So according to Catholic teaching, the Catholic Church doesn't have to have a pope at a particular moment. It doesn't cease to exist if a pope dies or resigns. It just means there's an interregnum between popes and there's no set length for interregnums. Uh, Historically, some of them have even been lengthy. The longest on record was the interregnum between Clement IV, who died in 1268, and Gregory X, who was elected in 1271. That interregnum lasted almost three years. So if Pope Joan was elected as an anti-pope and nobody realized it at the time, that would just mean that we had a longer interregnum between the death of her predecessor and the election of the next pope. So my overall faith reaction would be, so what? It, would, it might be surprising that there was a female pope, but it wouldn't challenge Catholic teaching or anything like that. Okay, so what can we say about Pope Joan from the reason perspective? The first thing to say is the whole story is just implausible. Historic, I mean, think about all that would have to apply for this situation to even happen. Historically, very few women have been able to pass as men especially before modern hormone treatments. And that makes the premise of the story unlikely. Also, this was an age in which few women were educated. And so it's unlikely that a woman would have been able to acquire the learning that Pope Joan allegedly used to rise in the church hierarchy. I mean, remember, according to the sources, she's like this super genius who is so admirable in her learning that she rises to become Pope because of how smart she is. And a woman for a woman to get that much education in this time would be really surprising plus she would be taking an extreme risk because this would be a process that would take years or even decades and if anybody found out in that time that she had been passing as a man much less a churchman in all those years before she was pope while she was still rising she would have faced imprisonment punishment punishment and possibly even death So if she's so smart, why is she taking that risk? Also, uh, notice the implausibility of giving birth on a horse. Birth is a process that can take hours, making it unlikely that the moment of birth would occur while she was on a horse. And she would have been having contractions beforehand, meaning she would be unlikely to get on the horse. And the horse, if she was sitting on it, would be blocking the birth canal, meaning the baby wouldn't come out. And as far as I know, popes didn't typically ride horses in this period. They were carried in sedan chairs. All of these factors make it very unlikely that a female pope would give rise, would give birth while riding on a horse. It's, it's thus just extremely unlikely that one of the few women historically who could pass as a man would also require, acquire great ecclesiastical learning and be willing to undertake the risks of becoming pope and then give birth on a horseback. Um, Also, uh, the so that's just the intrinsic implausibility of the story. 
Also, though, the earliest accounts we have of Pope Joan are not contemporary. They come from up to several centuries after she supposedly reigned. And that shouldn't happen because if there had been a female pope and she was publicly exposed, this would have been so shocking that there should be numerous mentions by contemporary sources saying, guess what just happened in Rome? This was so amazing. And there weren't. It's not till 150 or more years later that we have a reference to Pope Joan. So the story is just very implausible on its face. Where did it likely come from then? There have been several proposals that it was based on a specific incident. In the 1500s, the Italian historian Onofrio Panvinio suggested it might be based on stories about John Twelfth, who had many mistresses, one of whom was an influential woman apparently named Joan. So if a woman named Joan has influence over the Pope, you could maybe think of her as Pope Joan. Hmm. And, and thus, that might be how the legend started. In the 1600s, the Protestant historian David Blondell proposed that it may have originated as a satire of Pope John XI, who died in his early 20s. Those are possible. Uh, my personal suspicion is that it's just a popular story that eventually got mistaken as history. I mean, after all, it's got all the elements of an exciting and entertaining folktale. It's got a, a female pope. Wow. And she falls in love with a man and she gets pregnant and she gives birth in public and she has a tragic downfall. I mean, these are the same dramatic <laughs> elements that make people fascinated with the Pope Joan story today, and they would have been just as compelling then. In fact, there was a subgenre of literature at the time about super competent women passing as men and embarrassing men by doing so. At least four of Shakespeare's plays feature exactly this plot point. The plays, if you want to look them up, are As You Like It, Twelfth Night, the Merchant of Venice, and Two Gentlemen of Verona. I thus see it as entirely possible and plausible that the story was invented for entertainment purposes. It went viral and then got mistaken as history. One version of the folktale as origin of the legend theory comes from the 19th century German theologian and schismatic Johann von Dollinger. According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, Dollinger's explanation has met with more general approval. He recognizes the fable of Popus Joan as a survival of some local Roman folktale originally connected with certain ancient monuments and peculiar customs. An ancient statue discovered in the reign of Sixtus V in a street near the Colosseum, which showed a figure with a child, was popularly considered to represent the Popus. This could easily have given origin to the inscription mentioned by Jean de Mailly. It was also observed that the Pope did not pass along the street in solemn procession, perhaps on account of its narrowness. Further, it was noticed that on the occasion of his formal inauguration in front of the Lateran Basilica, the newly elected Pope always seated himself on a marble chair. This seat was an ancient bath stool of which there were many in Rome. It was merely made use of by the Pope to rest himself, but the imagination of the vulgar took this to signify that the sex of the Pope was thereby tested in order to prevent any further instance of a woman attaining to the chair of St. Peter. 
So regardless of whether these particulars were involved in the origin of the legend, I think it's likely that it was just a folktale. If the story is implausible on its face, and we have a plausible alternative account of how it arose, are there specific concrete reasons why we should see it as false? Yeah, the chronology doesn't work. Uh, This was pointed out by the French Protestant clergyman David Blondell in the 1600s. And so even though he was a Protestant, living in high-tension Reformation times, I mean, this was when the wars of religion were going on, and it could easily have served his interest to support the Pope Joan legend, he was honest about the historical record. If you go back and you look at the records of the proposed dates for Pope Joan, they don't work. For example, if you go back to the 850s, there isn't a space between Leo IV, who died in July of 1855, 855. Of 855. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Benedict III, who was elected in September of 855. There's certainly, I mean, there's certainly no space for a reign of two years and seven months that Martin of Tropau reports. It's just two months. And if there had been a whole additional conclave in there, we would have records of it. In fact, Benedict III was actually elected even sooner than the two months after Leo's death, but his installation was delayed until September because of an anti-pope, although it wasn't Pope Joan. Uh, Similarly, if you go to 1099, there is no space between Urban II, who died in July of 1099, and Pascal II, who was elected the next month in August of 1099. So there's no space in there for another conclave and a reign of a Pope Joan and a pregnancy that then disastrously ends in public. So the proposed chronologies for Pope Joan just don't work. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line then on Pope Joan? From a faith perspective, it wouldn't matter if there had been a female pope. It would just be a startling circumstance that doesn't really affect any doctrine or anything. From a reason perspective, though, we can say that the story is just false. It's implausible on its face. It has all the marks of a folktale that got mistaken for history, and the chronologies don't have room for a Pope Joan. So for all these reasons, all modern, reputable scholars hold that the legend was just false. Uh, Jimmy, I understand that there's one more thing you wanted to mention, that you, you have a personal connection to this story? Yeah, Pope Joan is my mom. Oh, wait, <laughs> she didn't exist. No, back in the 1990s, I was sitting at my desk at Catholic Answers when I got a call from a TV producer up the road in Hollywood. He wanted to know about Pope Joan so he could make a TV miniseries about her. I told him that the story wasn't true, and he was like, what, really? And he was very surprised, and he decided not to make the Pope Joan miniseries. So thank you. you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, it, it has been depicted in film. There was one back in 1972. And also in 2009, the German production company Constantine Film did release a Pope Joan movie. But at least we didn't have a Pope Joan miniseries on American television <laughs> in the 1990s. Oh, the disaster. Uh, coming soon from Netflix, Pope Joan. Yeah, maybe. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer the listeners on this? We'll have a link to some books. Uh, The first one is The Myth of Pope Joan by Alain Boreau, then The Legend of Pope Joan by Peter Stanford. And he actually is pro-Pope Joan. He thinks there was a woman, even though the details of the story aren't reliable. But, you know, I always want to give people 
alternative perspectives. So you can check out his Legend of Pope Joan, pro-Pope Joan book. Also, there's a book called The Afterlife of Pope Joan by Craig Rustici, if I'm saying that right, Mm -hmm. who is, he examines the impact of the Pope Joan legend on culture and history. So like, what were the ripple effects of this legend getting started on, on culture down through the ages? We'll have Wikipedia's article on Pope Joan and the Catholic Encyclopedia's article on Pope Joan and the Encyclopedia Britannica on Pope Joan and uh, also an article from Newsweek on Pope Joan coins that have been Hmm. found. Because if people believe legends, they sometimes have cultural ripples, like let's make some coins. Sell some souvenirs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, so, Jimmy, uh, we have some mysterious feedback from our listeners. Uh, these ones coming in on our Betty and Barney Hill episode, the first of those two episodes that we did. Uh, the, and the first bit of feedback comes from Brooke Kennel on Facebook, who says, Arg, a cliffhanger. You know I'm going to spend the whole next week obsessing over this, right? I was never a big UFO person before this show, but Jimmy's been slowly changing that. This episode just sealed the deal. I was not expecting to be as interested as I actually was. For some reason, it reminds me of the Skinwalker Ranch episode, perhaps because of the humanoid figures on the craft and the feeling of threat Barney experienced. It struck me that Barney and Betty seem to have had different reactions to their experiences. For Barney, it seems to have been an unqualified nightmare. He was scared and felt like he needed a shower afterwards. Betty seemed scared at certain points, but relatively relaxed at others, even laughing about the teeth thing. I don't know what to make of that, but it's interesting. Yeah, I I agree with Brooke. Betty and Barney had very different reactions. Barney had an anxiety disorder and and Betty was more of an adventurous. And so they that kind of shaped their perceptions of all this. And as as you heard in part two, I think Betty's active imagination actually fed into Barney's anxieties and led him to imagine things had happened to him that really had not. So it was kind of an unintended side effect. She fed his mental illness. And then Nicholas uh, writes on Facebook, I thought that adding in the audio of Barney with the radio interviewer and of both of them in the hypnosis sessions was great. Thank you, Nicholas. I am always looking for new ways as the show, as we've been doing the show longer, and we're trying to, you know, be more ambitious, take on new things we can do with the audio. And so I'm on the lookout these days for uh, bits of audio that I can include to help illustrate what we're talking about. And I I was really glad to find the hypnosis session so I could let you hear in their own voices what they were feeling. Ramey writes on Facebook, great episode. The hypnosis session with Barney was chilling. Looking forward to part two. Wondering what happened to the dog. Yeah, we didn't really cover it in the episodes because it was such a minor point, but their dog didn't live too long after the UFO encounter, and they wondered if the dog's health may have been somehow compromised, even though the dog was not taken aboard the UFO. Uh, And then we have some audio feedback from Christian, and this is what he had to say. Hi, Jimmy and Don. Uh, I'm Christian from the Dominican Republic. And I've always loved listening to the kindness in Jimmy's conversations uh, in Catholic, Catholic Answers. It's, it's nice to not always hear just angry people talking back and forth. Uh, when I stumbled across the podcast on YouTube while I was researching for, for a game I'm working on, 
I, I got hooked. I, I just started going through random topics at first and I just loved it. I loved how, how you guys go back and forth and, and really, and, and Pavlov's path, I wasn't sure if it was Dom or I who were, was more excited. I was just, it was just, it's been a really great experience. And actually, um, I had stopped listening to the podcast and I started once again after I, I found yours. I had a question in if heaven is being united to God, then would that put us into eternity? Or is that so like right now only kind of like Jesus and, and Mary or, or, you know, I just questioning that uh, because would that put them out of time and out of space, uh, the saints in heaven? Because what I wanted to know this for is just, uh, you know, if God willed it, would they in a sense be able to sort of time travel before they even existed uh, because they're outside of eternity, like they're in eternity uh, or even to another galaxy, for example, or if there are dimensions, other dimensions and et cetera, and be able to talk with other intelligent life. Uh, the reason I ask is just because I'm, I'm working on this Catholic based RPG video game, which uh, I'd like to include saints that are from our universe and speak to them uh, in other worlds. So, you know, just uh, more research, I guess, because <laughs> the, the, the aliens episode uh, helped me a bunch with a lot of things that I was working on. And now I, I became a, a patron. So basically that's a thank you because I, I really see that what you're doing is a really good thing. And I also think that we need to find new ways of evangelizing. And that's actually why I'm, I'm working on a video game myself. And what you guys are doing is, is great. I'm, I'm only going through this podcast right now, Jimmy's mysterious world, but I, I'm going to go uh, through the other ones because it, it's just been great content. Thank you so much, Christian, and good luck with your video game. We really appreciate your generosity and your support of uh, StarQuest and hope you enjoy the other StarQuest podcasts. In terms of your question, you do commonly hear people say that, you know, we're going to be outside of time and space in the afterlife. And that's an inference based on the fact that God in his divine essence, in his divine nature is spaceless and timeless and therefore outside of space and time. And since people know that we're going to be united with God or with God in the afterlife, they infer, well, then therefore we must be outside of space and time too. That's not the church's understanding. That's a misunderstanding. According to the church, every created being is bound by time in some way. So this is angels, this is us, this is us in the afterlife. And you can even see there is a, a progression that occurs in the afterlife where first you die, then you have the particular judgment, you may spend, you know, have some purification in purgatory, then that ends, you're in the full glory of heaven, then the resurrection occurs, we have the general judgment, then we have the eternal order. So we see this progression of events occurring to us in the afterlife. And those events, since they're not all instantaneously happening to us, they must be spread out over some kind of time-like dimension. It may not be time the way we experience it, or it may be exactly time. The medieval theologians like Aquinas had a term for it. They thought it shared some of the properties of time as we experience it, but not all of them. They called it Avum or Ave Eternity. And that's just theological speculation, though. It could be time exactly like we know it, or it could be different. So God in his divine nature is outside of space and time. But since he became incarnate and took on a human nature as Jesus, 
Jesus's human side is inside of time of some sort and seems to be inside of space of some sort, even if it's not our universe, because heaven was capable of receiving his body. He ascended bodily into heaven. And there are a few other people who are bodily in heaven, like Mary as well, but they're in a realm that has some analogy to space and time. Having said that, would that prohibit you from including time travel in your video game or dimension hopping saints? Absolutely not. Number one, it's fiction. So you can make the rules whatever you want. But theologically, there's no way to rule out that possibility. I don't I would love God to let us time travel and dimension travel and planet travel in the afterlife and after the resurrection. And for all I know, he may well let us do that. On the other hand, it may be like you know, what's sometimes is presented as the afterlife of pets of if you need them, they'll be there. <laughs> and so the dimension time hopping may be something like if you if you need it to be happy, it'll be there. But don't count on it being needed to be happy. There's all kinds of possibilities there. Our world itself is full of mysteries and certainly the afterlife is. So time travel and dimensional travel and planetary travel, all of those may be possible. So I would say if you think it would serve the needs of your game, feel free to include those. I'm hoping that if I make it to heaven, I get to live in the Shire. That's my... Uh-huh. <laughs> or I'll move to New Zealand, but uh, either way. Mm. So, thank you, Christian. New New, New Zealand, <laughs> New since New it'll Z- be on the New Earth. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, I can move to New Zealand in this life, because that's already a, the Shire. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so thank you, everyone, for your uh, feedback, and Christian, for your audio feedback. We'd love to get feedback. Uh, we love audio feedback, so excellent. Jimmy, do we have some mysterious headlines this week? Yeah, so since we had a religious theme this week talking about Pope Joan, I decided to uh, mention another article with a religious theme. Is Jesus appearing to Muslims? There are reports of Muslims around the world having visions of Jesus telling them they need to be Christian. Hmm. So uh, you can check that out. Also, this is sort of related to religion. A hidden scroll text from the Mount Vesuvius area has been revealed. They found this this writing that was originally unreadable because of Volcano Day, <laughs> and they've been able to read it anyway. And there are more. Th- this one was not connected to the Christian religion, but there are other similar documents that they may now be able to read. And I'm hoping that some of those may show evidence connected with Christianity, like maybe an early copy of or fragment of one of the Gospels, Mm. uh, which would show that there were Christians at Herculaneum or Pompeii. And because we do have some archaeological evidence that there were Christians there, which we'll talk about in a future episode, but it isn't literary evidence. And so it's it's debated. But if we found like a fragment of a Gospel or or one of Paul's letters that would show, no, there were Christians here mm. at this time. Jimmy, in a second, I'll ask you about uh, the topic of next week's episode. But first, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Penelope W., Jonathan L., Pam, James M., and Vincent D. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Our next episode is going to be an update on the Navy UFO study program ATIP. And wow, have there been a lot of developments. You will want to hear about this. Mm, I love it. 
So that's it from us. What did you think about this discussion about Pope Joan? Let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, which could include an attached audio file like Christian did. Or you can send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Please remember to go to the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World page on Facebook and like this episode there or to retweet it on Twitter. All of that helps the algorithms know that this is uh, something that it should be showing to other people who might be interested in this show. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>